Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Paul Libertor, music columnist for the Marin Independent Journal and a longtime chronicle, chronicler of the Marin County music scene. I'm pleased to be your moderator for what promises to be a fascinating show of rock photos and stories by multiple Grammy nominee Ethan Russell, one of the first ever rock photographers. Ethan's the only photographer to shoot album covers for the British Invasion's Big Three, the Beatles, the Who, and the Rolling Stones. Stones bassist Bill Wyman, himself an avid photographer, says Ethan has taken some of the greatest pictures in rock, maybe the greatest ever. And we'll see many of them in a few moments from Ethan's new book, which you can learn more about at ethanrussell.com. And to quote one of Ethan's book titles, we'll have the best seat in the house. So um, let's rock and roll, Ethan. Hi, Paul, thank you. You're welcome. And here I am, and I'm going to, hello everyone that may be watching. I am about to launch into the show. There's quite a number of pictures we're gonna be looking at, and so I'm gonna move it right along. I'm just, this is here to get this out of the way. At some point when you're looking at the pictures, you're going to see, you're going to kind of go, that's just impossible that that kid got to be in all those places. And I just want to let you know that I'm aware of that. And I agree. <laughs> but I did. This is the cover of the book that we'll be discussing. Uh, and, and what I want to communicate about it is, is specific. It actually is my fourth book. When I was in college, I wanted to be a writer. I was initially an English major. Then I became an art student. I never took a photography course. And while I have these other books, they're mostly, uh, they're equally as much about writing and story as they are about pictures. And it wasn't really until just about a year ago that I realized I'd never done a book of just my photography. And I'm a late in life father. And I thought it was important for me to, to leave this for my son. So that's the reason I did this book. Now, everything here, when I started, there was no such thing as a music photographer, but everything was about music. And, and, I, and that's what got me going and everybody in this book. What I really wanted to do when I was a kid was be Elvis, right? And so did John Lennon, so did everybody. Elvis was everything. There's just no two guys. Here I am trying to smile like Elvis, you know? So Amazing likeness. So skipping vastly forward, missing all early rock and roll and going straight to it. Here I am in college. I'm thinking this is about 1964. Uh, looking a bit like an art student, taking kind of an art student pose. And what what life was like was that music, especially the British invasion, as Paul suggested, was everything. It was it had gone for me from rock and roll Elvis to folk to Dylan, sort of really turned me around. And then everybody came along with it. Music was everything. I saw the movie blow up. I bought a camera. And this is one of the first pictures I took with that camera. Uh, it, it was a college sort of jam session. And I look at it today, when I looked at it, when I took it, I liked it, but I had no idea how, why it turned out the way that it did. I mean, the out of focus background sort of morphing and the kind of light of it, all of that was, I found, I liked it, found it interesting, didn't know how I got it. That would be pretty accurate. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, my brother had started a band called Blue Cheer, which is what you're looking at here. And to me, this is a sort of every band in the history of the universe rehearses in a space like this. And that's what they were doing. I wasn't a photographer yet. 
I was just taking pictures for my brother. And we were in Haight-Ashbury. This is literally the corner of Haight-Ashbury. I believe you can see the obligatory bus. All these pictures that are out of white. There's a few pictures in here that are not in the book, but, but especially if you see the white page behind, it's from the book. There's the obligatory Hells Angel. There's the obligatory VW bus. That's what it was. It was Haight-Ashbury in the 60s. We took pictures. Uh, you know, and again, this is the picture that I had no idea. When it came out, I looked at it and didn't quite understand why it looked the way it did. That's the truth. But I liked it. So there was something that, was, that I felt I could do. This is on Burrell Heights, actually. And so photography, I kind of, I thought this was exciting. I got a chance to go to England. Too long a story to tell. And I got on a plane, I went to England, and I expected, completely expected to wake up in the English Haight-Ashbury, you know. Uh, but it, that wasn't what it was at all, at all. Music was not, I mean, the music scene, as I knew it from California, you just didn't see it. But I loved England, and, and I was somewhat, to the extent that I could learn about photography, I would look at books. And this particular image is my Cartier-Bresson sort of cop and I like it. And that's the Serpentine River in the park. Uh, and I would walk around the park, but it wasn't long before, hello, Mick Jagger. So I have to sort of explain how this happened because it was impossible. I was living in a flat by myself, trying to be a writer, very bad at it. But I had these pictures that I had of blue cheer and this fellow came by my house, friend of a friend and asked me, and saw the pictures I had of Blue Cheer and asked me if I wanted to photograph his next session. I did not know who he was or who he worked for. And I said, oh, sure, who is it? And he said, Mick Jagger. That was my first session. I went to the Rolling, this is shot in the Rolling Stones, tiny office, four rooms. I benefited from just the light that the room provided me. There's sort of a lace curtain over a window. And I looked at these pictures and I, I was kind of I was, you know, I thought that these are nice, although there's a sweet little story where I'm looking at the contact sheets. And a waitress is looking over my shoulder and she, she looks at them and, and said, did you take those? And I said, yes. She said, they're not very good. <laughs> that was one of my first sort of things. But I, but I took them. And then almost immediately thereafter, within a couple of months, the gentleman, Jonathan Cott, turns out was his name. And he worked for Rolling Stone magazine in his early days, asked me if I wanted to photograph his next session. And it was John Lennon. So I said, sure. I was terrified. I was scared photographing Mick Jagger, but the idea of photographing John Lennon was more than I could stand. I remember my knees locking. So this remains one of my favorite photographs and was one of my earliest ones of him. And this one of Yoko Ono, which I call Han, they, had, they weren't really known as a couple yet. They were still pretty much under the radar. But, and I love this picture. It's still one of my favorite pictures of Yoko, taken in a canteen at the EMI studio. So, that got me going, well, maybe I can, maybe this thing that I can, wanted to do when I went to England, which was to photograph the scene, if you will, uh, I would get invited to things. So for a while, I'd go anywhere. And this is uh, Frank Zappa, and it's here because, to me, Frank Zappa is monumental. As simple as that. You know, it's a cocktail reception. It couldn't be more, I call this section paparazzi anyway. It's more like that. But I got to be around some ex people that were extraordinary to me, to be around... Stevie Winwood, looking kind of pensive in Chris Blackwell's office. It just was magnificent. And I was just so happy to be allowed to do it. There was not much more to say about it than that. So I was trying then to kind of up whatever this was that was going on. But John and Yoko 
came back to me. I mean, because I think because, you know, the minute they became more, I mean, I had John's phone number, <laughs> you know, I called him up at his flat, you know, when I was worried about a picture, he said, come on by the level of just one-on-one -on -one was phenomenal. And I think in part, he liked, he liked me. I was a little John Lennon clone anyway. Uh, but he also, I think liked that I liked Yoko. Right. And I took good pictures of his girlfriend. I really think that's why he liked me, at least in part. Uh, and they had this tremendous affection and I got to be, you know, so close to them. And he, John does this, he's done it with others and, but he did it with me as well, where he would, he would, he just, you'd just be his guy. So th they lost a child. Right. Uh, and here they are in a London hospital after her miscarriage and they invited me to come in. So I took pictures. He, he stayed there. I'm very unusual for an English male of that generation to never leave the side of the woman as if it was her problem. And, and so I was there and this picture for me, other than the sort of, I don't know why that sort of Picasso guitar angle, but it's just that moment of true intimacy. I didn't light anything. I never lit anything for years. I didn't know how. So later, more John and Yoko, they invited me down to his flat in uh, Weybridge, Surrey. And there was no one there. It was just not his flat, it was his house. It was in the stockbroker belt, it was called. He didn't like it, he called it a Mark Tudor shithouse. That's what he called it. Uh, but they came down and they got dressed in. At this time, they were spending a lot of time trying to be photographed as one, right? And I, but a super imposition and double exposures and a lot of things like that, which didn't work. And in this one, for me, the capes made them one while letting them be sort of their independent selves. So I'm very fond of this session. And, and at least in part, because, you know, they were so in love, it was so obvious, right? And he's serenading her, it's so cute. I think it's cute. Very. And she knights him. I mean, how sweet is that, you know? And if that's a, you're an English lad, you know, this is all what you grow up with as, as a kid. You're going to be Sir, Sir Lancelot, you know, it's very English. <laughs> and then there's this, this picture, which is the cat was there and he put it on his shoulder. So I took the picture. That's this, I call this, sorry. That's fantastic. That picture. Thank you. Thank you. Just, you know, and the whole time, there's no one else there. Me, John and Yoko and the cat. It, the, the level at which I was allowed to be close to them was phenomenal. So then Brian Jones, when I first, you know, Brian Jones, I shot this for a magazine that went defunct. Brian, of all of them, mostly you'll see the photographs I got were of them being within some reasonable uh, parameters, living their lives and being normal. But Brian wanted to act out. Brian was was a troubled man. So this is at his house. He just bought A.A. A. Milne's house, right? That's the statue of Christopher Robin, which Brian decides for these photographs. I have nothing to do with this. I'm not telling him what to do. I'd never tell any of these people what to do because what am I going to tell a beetle what to do? Give me a break. So, um, so he started doing this and it's hilarious because he's wearing his Wellingtons and it's muddy and it's the spring and he's being tough. <laughs> Excuse me. He couldn't keep up with it. You know, his toughness, he was not as tough as his toughness. And he will die at, in that house within about six months. 
most likely from just from the effects. He was very wasted. He looked about 48 and he was 26. So now I'm kind of in the swing of things and Granada Television is doing a show and Jim Morrison comes over to England. There's not a lot to say about it. Big reception. Everybody's paying attention to him. Nobody's paying attention to any of the others. And he was, you know, that was, the, he was the magnet and he performed at the London Roundhouse, which was just, you know, it was the Fillmore, if you will, for Northern London. His energy was so bizarre. The English had difficulty with it. I had difficulty with it. it you know, I had seen, by that point, I'd seen at least one Rolling Stones con concert at Wembley. And, you know, I, this, these are people that are working to, to get, to, you know, working for their money. And, and he was just standing there waiting for everything to come to him. It was a very kind of dark energy and I didn't like it. Uh, wasn't particularly thrilled with the photographs, although they're okay. And it wasn't until Francis Ford Coppola releases um, Apocalypse Now that I finally understand that the darkness that he was sort of embodying was really appropriate for the times. But I was gone, you know, when I was in America, the Vietnam War was everything. And I'd been in England long enough now that that wasn't everything anymore. Janis Joplin, Royal Albert Hall. The thing I would point out is that I'm on stage with her. <laughs> I, I didn't know who she was. She didn't know who I was. I have no idea how I got there. But you could do things like that. You know, you didn't have to walk through, you know, metal detectors to go in. I was actually on stage. This is sort of this is her, her looking at me, in my opinion, going, who are you, right? She's <laughs> in the middle of her set, right? <laughs> That's what it was. Similarly, this is Cream, also at the Royal Albert Hall. Cream, for those that don't know who they are, was Jack Bruce, off frame at the left, Ginger Baker and Eric Clapton. And I'm, you know, I'm dribbling over the edge of the stage, <laughs> clearly. Nobody's bothering me, taking pictures, God knows what. I don't recall having a press pass. I'm really, it's it's a different time, that's for sure. How loud was it, Ethan? Right I don't remember. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Uh, you know, not as the, the loudest band I ever heard when I was on the lip of the stage was The Who. I couldn't, oh. I couldn't hear for three days after that, you know? <laughs> so that was a different thing. The Rolling Stones did the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which wasn't released until 1990. Uh, this is the sort of the, the parade of people at the front of the show. And you can see on the left of frame, John and Yoko, and then Keith McBrien, Eric Clapton, the circus troupe. It was, I like to call it sort of like a musical Ed Sullivan show. It happened because the Stones had been arrested multiple times. Now, Brian in particular, for drugs and they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't get a visa. So they couldn't work. So this was their attempt to do something that would generate some income. Simple as that. That's what was going on. There was this, some of you may know and some of you may not know, but they put together for the show, this thing they called the Dirty Mac was Lennon's name. And it was, Keith Richards on bass, John playing rhythm, Eric Clapton playing lead, and Mitch Mitchell, who is a Jimi Hendrix experience playing drums. And they play Your Blues, and you can see it on YouTube, and it's phenomenal. And the thing is that all the music was live. You know, what will happen over time is you'll see image become more and more and more important to the music business, you know, pushing out the music, really. And so 
when when videos come along, nobody's playing music. They're all parading for the camera. There's a lot of subtext to that story. So this was <laughs> this was the poster. This was supposed to be the poster for the circus. You know, I was still just learning what I was doing. I had a Hasselblad camera. I put a wide angle lens on it. I do not know why. I'm about three and a half feet from the front of that tiger. The stage manager is telling everybody to be quiet because the tiger's liable to kill everyone. And I'm thinking, I'm the only one that's close to him. Jagger comes out of the uh, out of the doorway behind, kind of tiptoeing. <laughs> and I'm thinking, come on, Nick. You know, um, but that's what it is. And I kind of, this guy over here, the handler on the left of frame, this is my Diana Arbor's contribution. Brian, Brian, this is the late in the morning uh, at the end of the of the rock and roll circus, and Brian can't do anything anymore. They had to scrap the entire shoot or the Rolling Stones portion of the shoot because Brian just couldn't put twelve hours together in a row and be alert. And you can see it in this photograph, which is why this photograph I show it. You know, he, I don't. If this is January, he he dies in man, shortly few months Mick works and this is about three in the morning and they're finally getting through the taping let it be let it be so I get a call from the head of Apple who heard you know it's a very small world that this music scene in England it wasn't like it in America and and so they knew I they heard that I was photographing the Rolling Stones so they called me Neil Aspinall in particular uh, and to make a long story short I went down to the stage. Initially, they said I, it was impossible. I couldn't shoot them. So I went down because all the people that were filming Let It Be, which is going to be re-released this year, directed by Peter Jackson, who I met with, and needless to say, one of the greatest filmmakers alive today, especially technically. Um, and he interviewed me and he interviewed everybody. So he's doing a big release, re-release on Let It Be. So look forward to it. Um, to the left is Glenn Johns, a dear friend of mine. To the back is Tony Richmond, looking through the camera, cameraman. And they're in the beginning stages of Let It Be, filming on Twickenham sound stages. Now, at the time I took this picture, I had maybe been working as a real photographer for about eight months. So how you get luckier than I did, you can't. I think, I think, at that point in time, if you cared about music, this is January 2nd, January 3rd, 1969, there just wasn't a better place to be on the planet than where I'm standing, you know? Yeah. And they're working. I'm right there. I never say anything. I'm in and out. I'm pretty quick. I don't, I don't draw attention to myself. And, and, and then I just, then I get hired to keep shooting throughout the filming of Let It Be, basically, it's what happens. And they get there's a there's some tension on the set they're trying to downplay that now i don't know we'll see what the movie does but there's definite tension um i think to a certain extent it's because brian epstein is dead and i think brian epstein was the guy that everybody did what brian epstein said there's no brian epstein right george is not happy they go they leave twickenham state and this is the downstairs of apple studios yoko is there she's always there she she, it's an unsettling influence for people. They just don't know how to deal with it. She doesn't do anything wrong, you know. She certainly didn't break up the Beatles as people finally got around to accepting. I never know why those two put up with the heat that they got. 
So they're, they're now playing in a small room, much more sort of sympathetic to musicians than a soundstage. Paul is sort of driving the bus, as you can see, sort of saying this and this, and Yoko's there, and George is checked out. Mm. I shot a ton of pictures, and then nobody was telling me what to do. Nobody was telling the designer, John Kosh, what to do. So we chose the pictures, you know? I remember from this, from the first day I was down there, those eyes never left me, Paul's eyes. And those pictures ended up on the cover of Let It Be. Right? Yeah. Except this one. <laughs> That's the one I wanted for Ringo. And I showed it to Ringo and Ringo, you know, cause we were choosing the photographs. Imagine today, you know, how many people would have to be in the room to make a decision like that. So John and I were choosing the photos. We showed them to, I showed it to Ringo. Ringo said, I don't think I look as good as my mates. So he got that one. <laughs> I still like that one better. Very much towards the end. This is also on the, in the, in the rest of the world, the book came, the Let It Be came out with a hundred and something page book, which was all my photography. In America, that got traded away by Alan Klein for the more money on United Artists movie. Um, so it didn't come out here. This picture was used on the back of, I guess, the gatefold. Paul is looking, I mean, George is looking a little animated for, for him at this time. And what's going on in the story is that Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director, charming man, Orson Welles' son, is trying to get them to commit to something that they can do to finish the movie, and they can't agree on anything. And at the end of the day, the only thing that they can agree on is they're going to go upstairs to the roof of Apple. And this is the last performance by the Beatles live. It is incredible that 35 days earlier or thereabouts, they didn't have the songs, you know? They, they weren't all written yet. And 30 days later, they're performing them basically flawlessly. And I don't think there were two takes, they just did it, phenomenal. I like this picture because I call it my Icarus picture. I don't know why, because of the scale, because as huge as these people were, they still, in the context of this thousand year old city, there's something to be said for that amount of history. Where are you, Ethan, in that picture? Where were you in your Icarus oh, picture? Well, you can see it here. You, if you look to the top right here, uh -huh. okay. you, you see that? I'm, so I climbed up and then on top, and then I'm, that's where I am on top of that wow. right? with a wide angle lens. Right? You can almost see, see up I, you can't see my finger around pointing. To above the doorway, people are coming out. There's, you can tell it's corrugated iron. You can see it here, too, in the bottom of the frame. Okay, come on. There we go. I'm going back. Well, no. You got time for a quick question here? I got time for a quick question because I lost a shot. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, fire away. Yeah, so yeah, the question is, how did these rock stars view you as a photographer? And do you think they sensed how much their imagery helped their aura? I think that... Um, he, the the it's a sort of an elliptical answer. The music press and the music scene in London was still Cliff Richards. They were a good solid eight years behind us, right? Oh, right. The Beatles, once they were no longer mop tops, were not as sort of idolized in Britain as broadly. And the Stones always knew, I think that the image was a big part of what was going on. I really do think so. It was for me, you know, mm -hmm. but I didn't take, I didn't do photo sessions. I mean, this is a photo session, uh, but I didn't really do photo sessions. And so um, 
I think that I was American helped a lot because they all loved America. It never occurred to me they think anything good about America, right? <laughs> Since I thought everything in Britain was great, right? So I think the fact that I was an American helped me a lot. And the fact that I didn't kind of get in their face, right? And I took them seriously. And I photographed them doing what they do, right? So they could recognize themselves in, their, in the pictures, is what I think. But look at this. I look at this picture now. This was shot for the Through the Past Darkly session. And I look at it and I go, I mean, they're all smiling at me. I finally realized that I was part of the equation. I just find it kind of intriguing that apparently they liked me. You know, it's just a weird photo. Where have you ever seen a picture of the Rolling Stones? So I'm not really doing the bad Rolling Stones, as you can see. So I fell off message a little bit. It's kind of sweet. They're all holding hands and everything. Yeah, yeah. August 6th, 1969. It's, this is the carriage house of John Lennon's new home. He moved. Uh, I got a call the night before. i have been prepping a big shoot in the studio for them. And I got a call the night before saying it's all canceled. We're going to John. So I just showed up, right? Now, this was different in a couple of different ways. This is my favorite picture from them that time because I, even as a 24-year-old, I realized that the statues in the front of frame, first of all, they were imprinted upon me because they're Sergeant Pepper, right? But equally, I realized that the statues were going to last longer than the people behind the statues, right? It just was a weird thought to have, but it's also not this, right? Which is the obvious thought to have. And, and this is a sort of good news, bad news, Ethan Russell photograph, which is to say the good news is you get the truth and the bad news is you get the truth, <laughs> right? Um, the, you know, today, I, you would never see this picture, right? It would never get through the handlers, you know? And the technologies that we have today would say, well, Paul didn't look happy. Have we got one where he looks happy? And they'd put in the, they'd comp it in. You'd never see it, right? You wouldn't know it was comped in. And they do that to everything until they got a picture that didn't exist, a moment that didn't exist, but where people looked happier, right? And, and I'll let everybody judge for themselves when you start to manipulate truth like that, you pay a price. I mean, we're all paying it on a daily basis. Most all of us know it, right? But this was one of the very last pictures taken of them. And this was, I call this weep. You can see George, I think of however many rolls of film there were, I, I don't think George smiled in one photograph. And by this point, you know, he looks like the Prince of Darkness. Everybody's checked out, except for Paul, who's doing Napoleon, right? It was the last photograph I took of them. And it was very nearly the last photograph of them ever taken. It was the last session. And they were kind of over. If they knew they were over, I don't know. But they break up not long after this. Did they confide in you at all, Ethan, about what was going on? Did they what? Did they confide in you at all about what was going on? You know, that you can see a no. lot of your photographs. But... The short answer is no. You know, as opposed to, we're, we're getting to the Rolling Stones, so I'll segue on that. Yeah. This is the 1969 Rolling Stones tour. And what's unique about this, and there's a lot of stuff that's unique about this, uh, they find that Mick Taylor is now there so they can tour. They need the money desperately. There's only 16 of us, right? There's five Rolling Stones, six if you count Ian Stewart, and 10 other people, and that's the entire tour. And we travel on commercial airlines as often as not, and we drive in rented cars as often as not. And if this didn't work for them, 
they were very likely over. So the stakes were high, right? But I was really part of this. I mean, I was everywhere with them, right? Here, not so much here, but the Let It Be stuff, they're all in front of camera anyway all the time. That's what Let It Be is all about, right? So the same sense of intimacy just wasn't really in the cards. John and I got on, never changed, right? I, this photograph in rehearsal before the 69 tour, I, this is the kind of picture I think I take well. There's nothing about this picture that I changed. The lights, right? Everything is there, everything is real. And you're there with me. That's what I, when my stuff works, you get to be there too. Mm -hmm. They. This is another one where I went, they threw everybody else out of the dressing room but they let me stay, <laughs> you know? Um, mostly it's about work, you know? People think, the fantasy of being backstage with the Rolling Stones, not a fantasy that I participated in, they worked. The thing about all these people in my experience is they're workers, you know? They're not idiots. They're hardworking kids and all of the English come out of the Second World War. You know, there's a great George Harrison quote, I really like it. Somebody asked him if he had a phonograph when he was a kid, he said, I didn't have sugar, right? Americans didn't get it. Nobody bombed America. The stage is so low, I figured out this angle. This became my go-to angle for years afterwards when I was still doing it. Because you get to see what they see, right? But also the stage after Altamont, this is the same stage that was used at Altamont, they traveled with it. It's never that low again. People are having a great time, I love this picture. This is what it feels like, this is, this is what it felt like every night. B.B. King was with us. I took my father to see, I took my father to see the Stones in Oakland. And I asked dad what he thought of him. And he said, you know, B.B. King's a real showman. <laughs> so that was his response to that. Um, you never see Keith look that sweet because, you know, Chuck Berry is everything to him. You know, this picture I call the first generation and second generation of rock. I think about rock in generations like that. And Elvis and Chuck Berry are first generation. So I don't know that I truly appreciated what I was looking at here, honestly. Um, were they but, both on the same bill? Were they on the same bill with them? Is that right? They were on the same bill, yeah. Yeah, okay. I like this shot just because we picked up these security in New York City. The tour would have been over in two gigs. And Altamont was added. And I, and I call these guys hush puppy security if you look at their shoes. Uh, <laughs> and, and they're just like, they're a couple of, you know, they're a couple of boys from New York City that are being put in between a rock and roll crowd and Mick, you know. Uh, so I like it. Great shot. This is here because, and it's in the book, and I, I don't show it a lot. There's a lot of it that feels like this. You know, Charlie is not happy. This not they're not that this is not all fun, right? Uh I wish I I had a real prejudice against Flash. Um and I wish I hadn't in a funny way. Um because uh, this picture doesn't happen without Flash and it, it gives a different kind of quality. I've got very little that's like this. Right. I love all the instamatic <laughs> with the cube flash bulbs on the right. <laughs> um this picture, first of all, I like this picture because it's so sort of pale and contemplative, but equally, 
it becomes more impressive when you know that it was taken here, <laughs> right? It's the oh, middle okay. of, of the New York press conference in the Rainbow Room where they're announcing that there's going to be a live concert in America, but they, in California, they didn't know where, San Francisco, they said San Francisco, right? There's no location yet. The guy on the far right that looks like he's straight out of The Godfather, which is exactly the way I thought he looked when he showed up at the house in Los Angeles and said, I'm Pete, he's back here. <laughs> you know, and he had a pinstripe suit. Well, you couldn't have seen it. It was The Untouchables. It was the version. It was Alan Klein's record promo guy. And he, he and he looked like a caricature. of it. But I realized that the Rolling Stones bought the caricature of America, the same way Americans brought the caricature of England. And part of the thing that I learned over the years writing books about this stuff is how much we really took for granted and didn't understand about each other, right? Uh, but these were the guys that the Stones had hired and San Francisco, among other things, was very you know, dismissive of during the sort of Haight-Ashbury period and Altamont and all that because these were the managers of the Rolling Stones. This would have been the last concert right here and the last one of the last photographs from that tour. It's outdoors. It's uh, Fort Lauderdale. It's a very pretty picture, I think, of Mick and, and it's freezing and the, the mist is coming out of his mouth. Florida is in complete turmoil, still is, <laughs> um, about the hippies and music and all that, everything you'd expect. We, get, we take a helicopter out, feels very much like v Vietnam and the dawn over the Everglades. And we end up on this beach. And this would have pretty much been the last shot, except they've now announced this. It's sort of nice that it's Mick. And it's sort of nice that it's in black and white, I think, you know, given it's a dawn picture. Um, <coughs> excuse me. He, uh, he's looking out, who knows, we've all been up all night. And they're about to go to Muscle Shoals to do the work that they do down there that you can see in the Gimme Shelter film. And, and, we, and I head out to San Francisco and we end up back in this tent. This was the best there was for backstage. There really was no backstage. It was chaotic. The this, best, is all, this is Altamont now, right? This is Altamont, that's right. And the best thing I mean, the, the, I wrote a huge book on it. Uh, took me right. six years to do. Uh, and I think it's great. It's on the whole tour, though. It's not just on Altamont. Uh, yeah. But Altamont is very much part of it because that's, you know, without Altamont, what do we call this tour? You know, uh, the hat tour, my, my friend Georgia said. Um, but Altamont changes everything. Um, you're still got the same four foot stage. That never happens again. Right. All I want, my personal feeling was I want to get out of here. I had no sense of occasion. It was horrible. And I just wanted out. I didn't take many pictures. I thought rather naively that I had my pictures. I just done the whole tour. What do I need these for? So I don't have a ton. Uh, I was taken off stage by the Hells Angels. I was, I was, a I could have been on stage, but stage was, you know, it was a mess. It was bending under the weight of all the people on it. Could have felt worse. Uh, and so I got lifted off the stage and put on top of a truck right next to the cameraman 
that got the footage of Meredith Hunter being stabbed, right? We flew out on a helicopter. I don't have that picture in this show, but we flew out on a helicopter that was so overloaded. You know, I think I might've been one of the first ones on it. I just wanted to get out so badly. I, I almost couldn't get out because I got stopped by a chain link fence, couldn't figure out how to get around it. Um, got on the helicopter, lay on the floor. And I think nine or 10 more people got on the helicopter. It was so overloaded that it wouldn't take off vertically. It just, yeah. you know, it would, it would go about, you know, 10 yards and then hit the ground again. And then it took a long time for it to get into the air. It was way over past its safety envelope. You know, everybody could have been killed. Georgia Bergman, who w w ran their office at the time, said there were just so many ways to die at Altamont. It was, felt like that to everybody. Did a ba the band have a sense of, of, of impending doom during the whole time? I and mean, what, what was their attitude? As this my sense is that Mick has, in my opinion, always had a highly developed sense of his own safety, right? I mean, remember, yeah. the, remember the tiger, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think he was very aware that he could be the target, right? I don't think he was the target. Oh, well, he might have been the target for Meredith Hunter. That's another conversation. He might well have been. But I think he was scared. Everybody was scared. Bill Wyman's quote to me was, the Rolling Stones have been scared maybe twice. And this was once. You know, it was terrifying. There was just no two ways about it. And it was out of control. And you can see it in Gimme Shelter. There's no, Gimme Shelter does a pretty good job of showing what it was like on the day. What it doesn't show is it in context of the tour, which is to say, from their point of view, I think, and reasonably enough, especially if you figure they've been doing it since 1962 or three, that this is just another gig. You know, imagine, I always like to say, imagine you're an American, you're from San Francisco and you're gonna go play, you know, in a stadium somewhere outside of Lyon in France, right? And you're gonna think, well, it's not gonna feel, it's not gonna feel as central to you as it obviously does to the people that are there. And I think this for them, I think this was another gig. I think they felt that it was horrible and I think they were right. I don't feel like, I think there's a lot of finger pointing and there were plenty of places to point fingers. But, but uh, my own personal, take is it's the it's the real it's the you know i'm an american i grew up with hell's angels i'm a california i grew up with hell's angels and never thought that hell's angels were likely to be my best friend right and that was the culture at the time and i think that what sam cutler told me was the hell's angels came from all over california so it wasn't the san francisco angels there were lots of parts at play yeah it's too low i mean i could i mean it took me six years to write a book Went back to England, glad to be home because that's where home was. Got a call from Glenn Johns who's producing a record that became Who's Next. Uh, they don't have a cover. We go driving around. I have, this is you know, somebody once, I, you can't have an idea for this cover. You know, we're driving along about a hundred miles an hour on a, right next to, then I see these shapes. And so we go up and, and they walk around and they all start doing the obvious thing, which is 2001, right? Uh, but in the middle of all that, and I'm thinking, well, these are far out, but I don't, what, are, what are they? And are they a cover? And I turn around and Pete's pissed on the monolisk. And then, so that turned into that. I, all the other little 
you know, dribbles of urine are actually film cans filled with water, right? But, and the sky is fake, but still pretty unusual. Can't have that idea is my point. You can't sit around a room and say, let's go do that. <laughs> so that's what happened. And we drove away. I didn't take very many pictures. And then I got terrified that I, that it was good. You know, I, I sort of spooked myself and maybe took, I don't know, eight pictures, not many. Right. And then, oh God, I hope I got it and did. 1972 Stones tour. We like this picture because Mick is taking a picture of us. That's why I like to think about that picture. A lot's changed. Society is changing and it's really, to me, this 1972 tour, everything is bigger. All the trauma from the 1969 tour in Altamont is very present. Everybody's carrying guns and has bodyguards. This, uh, this looks, you know, every, they got their first plane. Seems a little quaint today, but yeah. at the time it was a big deal. Uh, everybody had their own limo and it's, it was sort of like that. And, and, uh, and the publicists have gone from being a sort of, uh, sort of kooky, kooky, let me your cone publicist to hip kids, hip cocaine kids. You know, that's what it's like. We're taking over Los Angeles. Georgia Bergman, who ran their office, and Peter Rudge, educated in Cambridge, who was the tour manager for 1972. And this is often what, you know, this is what, it's stress. It's what you expect, really, honestly. You know, it's not all girls and fun. It's work. It's stress. It's all of that kind of stuff, right? And I like this picture for that reason, because I can feel it. It's very palpable, right? Um there must have there. I was the only photographer in 1969, and uh, I was one of four, three or four photographers on this. I got a picture later, uh, and, and I do believe Jim Marshall is standing to my right and gets this almost exact picture. I don't think oh. Andy's there, but but you know, and remember that shot that I said that was my favorite angle. Well, here it is paying off again. Uh, <laughs> this is called Keith Richards with Jack and Coors. Uh, and it's just that you gotta love this angle. What, why, why be anywhere else? You know. Um, so I love it. Um, and this was a picture that very famous at the time. What I've noticed, not really apropos of anything, is that Keith has kind of eclipsed Mick as kind of the bigger persona of them. You know. Uh, you know, at the time, this was really the heroic picture is put in on front of a couple books and. Uh, and then that's a very famous picture. And it's an Ethan Russell made up picture. He was not standing there. I saw the sign and I called him over. I only got two frames. Uh, you know, um, because the, the customs guy said, stop or I'll confiscate your film. And I sort of knew what I had. I was trying to get Mick to show up so it would be Mick and Keith in front of that sign, but I didn't get to it. So I had two frames. The other one's completely useless. And this one is Chronicle called one of the greatest pictures in rock and roll. It's pretty good. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it, it, you know. <laughs> There's Jim Marshall there, I was saying. Yeah. Right uh, so there yeah. you have the photographers and Keith. So for a, a death knell sound of doom, everybody in this photograph except Keith and me is dead. Uh, yeah, right. Bobby Keys is gone, Ken Reagan is gone, Jim Marshall is gone, and Ian Stewart, who is a founding member of the Rolling Stone in the right, who Keith seems to be yelling at, which must be fun for him, because he was a Rolling Stone before 
Keith was, um, but whatever is actually going on, that's what you started to have a big crush of media, for lack of a better word, during that tour. And it was and now celebrity starts to show up. So I call this out because it's true. It's really the, right before the beginning of People magazine. It's right before he writes, it's only rock and roll, but I like it. And it's really the ascension of the age of celebrity. You can see it in front of the camera. That's Jackie Onassis's sister. Yeah, Lee Radziwill. Yeah, Lee Radziwill. And then there's Annie Lewis as a little girl. Wow. You know? And she was charming then. And, you know, Annie has a lot of charm when she wants it, wants it, right? And Robert Frank, if I'd known who Robert Frank was, he was making the movie Cocksucker Blues. Uh, and he liked me for no known reason. And I liked him. I was so ignorant, I didn't really know who he was, which probably just as well. I would have been too intimidated. But uh, he's making that movie and getting on board the plane. And there's Terry Southern, who was a drag, complete drag, you know, a garbage can sort of Hoover going through Keith's drug bag. Uh, and I got kind of assigned to him for a while. And he was just a mess you know, fall over on stage, almost got everybody arrested in the South. Just a mess, you know, uh, there to be a cool druggie. Uh, and, you know, you don't, want to, you don't want to try and play tennis with Keith. It's not, you know, not, not good for your health. So that's what's going on there. And then that's the cover of the book. And that's right after that moment. That's Keith. That is his real drug bag. And, that, and there's not, you know, he didn't walk down there. You know, it's not, oh, would you walk down again and get it, Keith? No. Uh, that's just the moment and he's got his tequila sunrise in his right hand it looks like so that because every so often i didn't take as many pictures of the crowd as i should have but uh, that's at the end of the day that's still what the rolling stones deliver it's like this is a shitload of fun and they work at it right you gotta, you gotta check time for a couple of pictures before i mean a couple of questions before it gets uh, yeah you sure for sure yeah, i don't even uh, i'm not at all aware of time let me see what time it is okay we're Kind Somebody of. wants to know, when did you feel you became a good photographer? You mentioned earlier you were learning on the job when you were younger and didn't know what you were doing. So was there a point where you said, okay, I know, I'm, I'm confident now. I know, I know what I'm doing and what I want. The answer is I certainly got, I certainly learned my craft um, over time. This is a good example of it, Quadrophenia, which is completely made up. So the, so the short answer is, is that there's always a moment, you know, the, these guys move fast. The initial photographs that I didn't have a motor drive. I did, there was no such thing as autofocus. There was no, I didn't have auto advance. I mean, there were a lot of sort of physical limitations like that. And the films were slower and there was some stuff that made it more difficult, just generally more difficult. Uh, and you learn that, but you're still, I, I don't know that I feel confident. And, and the fact of the matter is, I think it's generally true of creative is you can feel confident and be wrong, you know? So, 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 so I did Quadrophenia. I'm aware of the time, so I'm going to zip it along, but we're quite yeah. close to the end. Quadrophenia was like the culmination of what I'd gotten to identify because I wanted to be a writer, right? I thought that singer-songwriters were the most uh, important writers of my generation. I still will make that argument. Uh, and and so I sort of got to a point where I th saw my job as I'm going to try and bring their stories to a visual life, right? And, and in the case of Quadrophenia, we built the world. We cast the characters. We cast his mother in this shot. You know, it's the story of Jimmy, 
after Tommy. Uh, and it was, it was an exhaustive amount of work, but it was still work I'm very proud of. Uh, but it was just, you know, it's, it's a little bit, it's just as the world is really starting to turn. And I, I have some sympathy for it now as an adult. Poor Pete didn't know what he was getting into. I showed up with a 40-page book they all of a sudden had to pay for. But, you know, it's art. There's no question in my mind that that's what's going on. And it's art in the service of, of the work that they're doing. So it was pretty innocent that way. Um, and I really liked that. And I felt like that was the that was sort of the holy grail was to try and really bring to life the writing that these guys put into their music right so and i identified that so that's what this book was all about and you know the brighton was which is where this is that's brighton pier was the mecca of the mods and we you know we just redid it all it was about 30 days of shooting uh so it's a lot it was all just me and the kid right that's the very last shot from the book that went with the album and I, you know, I wasn't, the whole weren't basically in it. I did sort of lose. And, and I think certain people felt that, that that was really a mistake on my part. And arguably, it's certainly easy to be sympathetic with them. Then I had a few, I'm zipping here as we're coming up to 50 minutes. Uh, uh, Santana, Carlos Santana here. It was a very different experience. There was no cohesion off stage between him and his band, you know. He's upstairs with his guru. That's what this picture is all about. And th there's some pretty riotous stuff going on downstairs. Not for, suitable for publication. The story behind this, I, you know, I like the picture because I like what I was trying to do and I feel I was kind of successful with it. But um, I have seven rolls of this where he doesn't, he's just expressionless. And I got so frustrated, I asked for the smile. He gave me the smile and I went, I felt like I cheated and wondered why I didn't do it way sooner. The Eagles before they released their first album, Topanga Canyon, before, you know, before they get taken apart by show business. Jerry Lee Lewis, I love that, you know, uh, you know, for me, that this is late, this mid 70s in Los Angeles. It's kind of depressing because it's sort of like the studio band that's put together to squeeze another album out of him. But I just love this picture. And I love this picture. It's made up in the studio. The piano was there. The red carpet was there. I brought the light that gave you this effect. But he wore those clothes. I can't get a, I get such a big kick out of Jerry Lee Lewis deciding this is how he wants to look for the image, you know, with his white shoes. He looks like a Memphis used car salesman, you know. But he's happy. Uh, I leave. And I'm just getting to the end of my work. I do uh, a couple albums with Linda Ronstadt, still one of the people I listen to all the time classy lady in every respect beautiful voice this is the prisoner in disguise cover that's great hasten down the wind the horse was an accident you know there's tricks going on here this sort of like you're mixing you know fading daylight with a portable strobe and you know slicing it up phil everly which to me meant a lot because phil everly was right up there with elvis and this is quite late 1975 Slick enough in terms of technique. Ricky Lee Jones, an interesting person to work with. She, she, I was doing film at that point in video, not music video as we knew it, but films for music. And um, she didn't have a record for, didn't have a picture for her sleeve. So in order to get her record out the door, I did this picture, starting to have fun in my studio. That actually is Dave Mason in my studio. So you can start to feel the influence of Los Angeles, which is, I'm really not Los Angeles, so it wasn't really working for me. But it was fun. 
Ted Nugent, you know, just now becoming a work, work, workhorse photographer, really. Uh, and I stopped being a photographer really shortly after this. One of my, Chris Cornell liked this picture. It was, the angel was shot first and then it was put together, I think, successfully. One of my favorite human beings in the world, Roseanne Cash, at her home in New York. And we did a lot of work. This is at, for uh, around an album she did called Black Cadillac. So I'm once again going into this phrase of trying to take a writer, singer-songwriter, and extrapolate them into image. We went to her father's home and her childhood home. He passed away about a month earlier. So this is the childhood home for Roseanne. And the picture middle left was Johnny Cash's bedroom as the house is now being emptied out. Right? And this is Roseanne walking away from her father's grave, right? Wow. Uh, a real moment. And, and you know, and what I like about it is how, how American that cemetery is, you know? Um, and that's really the end of the book. So I, I got out of here maybe just in time. A picture yeah, taken up in- Right on time. We have enough time for it. I have a couple of pictures here that we haven't gotten to. Uh, here's someone who wants to know, uh, are there any rock music photographers whose photos you really like and admire? Well, I'm a little bit like, not to be snitty, but I don't like the idea of rock photography as an idea anyway. So, but I mean, there are, there are a bunch of people I really like. I mean, uh, Annie doesn't really fit that description. You see a lot of uh, Henry Diltz, who has some great work. He has a lot of work. He's been still doing it. Uh, let me think. Joel Bernstein comes to mind. Uh, there's uh, there, sort of the normal suspects. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody I wish I wasn't forgetting. But yes, talk about Jim Neil Marshall. Preston. Neil Preston was basically my age. I got to be friends with him. And Neil, you know, I stopped doing this because it wasn't really what I wanted to do, per se, where there are some people, especially some that are younger than me, who this is the life that they wanted and they made it their whole life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why did you stop? I would, um, well, I ended, so, you know, I started out as an art, sort of as a, you know, ancillary art thing that I took pictures, right? Uh, I started out being completely immersed in sort of the magic of the music, right? And really over time, what? and it's true, I ended up in a studio in Los Angeles, so I ended up in show business. I had no interest, didn't then, still don't in show business. Show business does not interest me, right? So all the brouhaha around it and all the rest of that, I just don't have any interest in it. So I stopped. I also went on because I was trying to take, I tried to get Quadrophenia made as a film. So I was trying to take this idea, which I was attached to, which was that you can take the writing of these people and turn it into something bigger and visual. And I was trying to move it into full length motion pictures, right? And, I, and you know, and one of the things that you learn when you start getting involved in that world is you can spend a lot of time getting nothing done. But you yeah. can get a lot of people saying that they're, it's really going to be great. So um, at the end of the day, I didn't have the patience for that. Well, I'm certainly glad you did what you did. You, you've taken some of the most iconic photos in rock and roll. Uh, and you were there at the beginning, as I said at the, uh, earlier. I mean, before you, um, rock photographer wasn't even a thing, you know? And you, you, kind, you, cre you kind of you created this whole form, an art form. It's changed a lot over the years, I know. 
but uh, and we could have a whole conversation about that sometime. But I think we're running out of time here. I want to thank you, Ethan. I think this whole this has been a fascinating hour. It went by really fast. <laughs> I want to really... give a plug to the original music photographer, who's Herman Leonard. Can we be real? You know, who was okay. walking around with a view camera in the '40s shooting jazz musicians. That's the real initial. And um, again, Ethan, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I, I so did, and I hope, and I'm sure all of the, your viewers and your fans. The old ones and the new ones you picked up tonight did as well. So I've always wanted to say this. So I'm Paul Libertor, and this is Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. And I want to say thank so, you to you and the Commonwealth Club as well. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.